Dear Father, thank you for bringing us all back after a short break. Thank you, Father, for this continuing study, for the faithfulness that you've shown us in opening these doors year after year for this study. And as this book draws to a close, Father, we just want to give you praise and praise your name, praise your, your faithfulness, your provision, your grace to us. We praise you for your wisdom, for the instruction you've given through me and through others as we've met here and learned together. And we thank you for your word, for the rock that it is in our lives, the truth that never changes, the thing we can turn to, Father, when nothing else in this world can be trusted. And we thank you, Father, for men and women who care to hear it, so that as I showed up, so did they. And there were always somebody in this room, Father, who wanted to know the truth. We thank you for that. And most of all, Father, we, just, we thank you that though this study may come to an end, though we may leave this building as we plan to, and our plans will vary from year to year. Nonetheless, Father, uh, your word will never change. And when all has passed away, your word will remain. And so we honor you for that more than all. That you have revealed yourself to infants like us. We thank you, Father, for that grace, for that blessing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we broke last time, we had just completed a major section in Paul's letter, that, that instruction on sanctification in chapters 12 and 13. And now we're ready to tackle the final two issues that Paul raises in this letter on the question of living out your sanctification. That's a part of the letter we're in now, starting in chapter 12. The two issues that we're going to talk about now in chapters 14 and 15, they stand apart. And so as a result, they, they don't follow the, the bullseye structure that we started with that's guided our teaching over the last two chapters. And I have a picture of it in the notes. Up till now, Paul's been teaching about how to live out your salvation according to this priority scheme that I draw as a bullseye. He started with what is our highest priority in our walk of sanctification, which is our priority of the relationship we have with God. That's at the center. Then he moved outward in discussing our relationship with the church and then our relationship with unbelievers and then our relationship to societal institutions. And each of those relationships was represented by one of the rings on that bullseye. And each holds opportunity for us to practice holiness and to further the church's mission. And we've talked at length about how they interact, how we move through them, and so on. But in general, each of those rings asks us to place the needs of Christ above our own. And your success in each of those rings will depend on you're having made progress on the prior ring, on the, the ring closest to the center. So for that reason, his bullseye becomes kind of a roadmap, if you want to call it that, for your effort in living out your salvation, the one you've received by grace. So how is it you live it out? How is it that you would take hold of this grace God has given you? Well, follow the map of the bullseye, and that's your roadmap. But now Paul's not finished with exhortation because there's some other issues that were troubling the church, particularly in its early years, that he felt deserved special attention. Those are the issues covered in chapters 14 and 15. They deal with the relationship between Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the church. And the uniqueness of that set of circumstances deserves a few minutes of introduction tonight. So before we go into the text, let me give you a little background on why these two chapters are in Romans. The formation of the church in the first century involved a grand social experiment. Never before in history had Jews and Gentiles tried to associate so closely together in a single institution. 
And the amalgamation of those two groups into one body brought significant challenges for the early church. And you get a sense of how great those challenges were when you read about the experiences of the apostles themselves in some of those early years. And in particular, the apostle Peter. God love him, he struggled. He struggled in particular with the introduction of Gentiles into the body of Christ. At one point, his struggles even threatened to divide the body. It was so bad that it required another apostle, Paul, to chastise Peter publicly for his failure to embrace God's call to the Gentiles and to advance the unity of the church. Paul gives us that moment in a letter in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes this, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews... Well, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? That statement in Galatians 2.14 sums up chapters 14 and 15. After Peter fled persecution in Jerusalem, which is where he was originally ministering to the Jews in the early church, after he left Jerusalem, he ended up setting up residence in the fast-growing church community of Antioch, Syria. In fact, Antioch is the first church to be established outside of Judea, historically. And as such, it was the first church that attempted a large-scale integration of Jews and Gentiles into the same community. No one had ever tried this before. No one ever needed to. Never before in history had something like this been done. Now, unsurprisingly, the integration didn't go very smoothly, not at first. The difficulties were so significant that eventually it prompted a grand meeting of apostles in Jerusalem to settle the disputes that were coming out of this attempt to put the two communities into one body. Paul and Barnabas left the church in Antioch and traveled as representatives of that community down to Jerusalem to attend the meeting. At that council, all the apostles eventually agreed that Gentiles were being called into the faith by God. It was a legitimate movement. And they should not be called to adopt Jewish practices in order to become part of a body that included Jews. That, In other words, they could remain Gentile while still associating with Jews. Apart from a few specific concessions that the apostles asked Gentiles to make, they were otherwise allowed to continue in their normal Gentile culture while being in the church. Nevertheless, despite the council's decision, Peter continued to struggle with what the council was calling for. So it was after this council in Jerusalem that Peter traveled to Antioch. And while he's there, he acted contrary to the agreement that he had been a part of with the other apostles. Specifically, according to Paul, Peter acted hypocritically by distancing himself at mealtimes from the others that were Gentile in the church. And eventually, his influence led the rest of the Jews who were in the church to mimic him, to follow in his footsteps. So what had been apparently some kind of unified community, at least in some sense, fell apart overnight as soon as Peter reverted to his Jewish cultural training. And so, as Paul says, when Jews from Jerusalem visited Antioch, Peter didn't want to be crosswise with them, so he refused to eat at the table of Gentiles. And that's why Paul chastised him. So clearly, if the Apostle Peter 
struggled to accept Gentile believers, you can be sure he wasn't alone, that there were other Jews in the church who were similarly concerned. And as hard as it was for a Jew to accept a Gentile, the opposite was also true. Gentile believers were equally put off by the oddities of Jewish culture. Jews were raised to observe strict dietary laws and to practice unique rituals throughout the day and week. And so when a Jew came to faith in Christ, that Jewish believer was suddenly free from all of those restrictions and could live in new ways, unfamiliar ways, with the liberty they have in Christ. And as a result, many Jews found it really difficult to abandon that heritage and those lifestyle practices all at once. For many years, probably most of the first century, Jewish believers, in many cases, just continued in their Jewish traditions. In fact, the letter of Hebrews was written to stop some of the more extreme of these behaviors among Jewish believers for that very reason. But those who would continue this way within the church were now creating problems for Gentiles who were unfamiliar with any of these things and found them generally unappealing. So you have Jewish zealousness making Gentiles uncomfortable, especially if it was combined with self-righteousness or haughtiness, like in the case of Peter. And so Gentile believers were resisting integration with Jews who were maintaining their Jewish traditions, even as the Jews who did maintain traditions were ostracizing themselves from those Gentile believers. It was like oil and water. And that was a key sticking point for unity in the early church. The Jewish insistence of never sharing a meal with Gentiles and the Gentile revulsion only reinforced that distancing. And the meal issue was particularly important. That may seem like just a, an isolated incident, maybe not even one that's terribly meaningful. But in reality, it was the most meaningful. The meal time. The desire of Jews to stay apart from Gentiles during a meal stemmed from Jewish dietary restrictions. A Jew could not eat under the law. In other words, a Jew could not eat many of the things that Gentiles commonly ate. And that led Jews to avoid being at a table, at a meal table, with Gentiles. And that quickly, over time, turned into a general prohibition against even entering a Gentile's home or being associated with them in any way. That's the rule that Peter was following, hypocritically, in Antioch. That is, we can't sit and eat with Gentiles because their food is unclean and we can't be made unclean by being around it, by having it on the table next to us or touching the plate we might eat on. Now, obviously... Nothing destroys unity in a community faster than refusing to eat together. I mean, that's just human nature. And even among young children in school, you know, who you eat with during lunch break indicates which community has accepted you or not. And for Jews and Gentiles in the early church, a failure to eat together struck at the heart of unity in the body. And secondarily, other Jewish observances like Sabbath and feasts and, and other elements of the law, those things just proceeded to drive the wedge deeper to make the distinctions even greater all right so this is not a great recipe for unity in a body which is just getting formed which is why paul set out to address these issues in these chapters now at this point you have to ask the question well if these chapters are about jew and gentile relationships in the church are they still relevant to the church today well let's say first there are some places where they're very relevant because there are places in the present day church where you still see an attempt to integrate Jew and Gentile, particularly in Israel. For example, in the state of Israel, when there is when faith comes to a Jew and they become a Messianic Jew, a believing Jew, there may be Gentiles in that same community and they may associate together. And how does that work? In fact, one of the reasons why you see Messianic communities 
at least sometimes, is because you have Jews who still feel some discomfort fully shedding the cultural lifestyle issues that came with being Jew. And so for those communities, Romans 14 and 15 are immediately applicable. But in other places, it's common to find these messianic congregations assembling outside of a largely Jewish community. They are ostensibly Christian, and they have adopted distinctly Jewish styles of worship, probably to appeal to some Jewish believers. They'll also attract Gentiles who are attracted to understanding the Jewish roots of their faith, which is fine. And in these settings, you still find the potential for the same kind of conflict that Paul was talking about, although ironically, sometimes it's exactly reversed. You've got Gentiles who play Jews so much that it offends the Jews. And you've got some Jews who are dropping their law so quickly, it offends other Jews. I mean, you never quite know what the dynamic is in these places. But what about for the rest of us? You know, Gentiles in Gentile churches, no Jews to be seen anywhere. Well, for the rest of us, Paul's teaching still remains relevant because underlying the teaching are general principles that are immediately applicable, but in other contexts. So even if you're not dealing with differences between Jew and Gentile, you're still going to have other differences that can divide in the body. And those differences could be racial. They could be national. They could be cultural. We could have believers that have different convictions about lifestyle. We could have believers who have different levels of spiritual maturity or different interpretations of Scripture. And all of those differences can lead to divisions and difficulties similar to the ones that were being faced in the early church. And in those cases, Paul's teaching brings principles to bear that guide us through those difficulties. So the teaching is still applicable. So let's turn to chapter 14 now with that background. And as we observe Paul's instructions... We want to understand what he was saying to them, yes, but we also will look at what principle is at work so that we can make application to our day today. All right, let's start with Romans 14, verse 1. Paul says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So with that opening, Paul calls for one group, you notice, within the body, to accept, or the word in Greek could be translated to receive, another group. We're going to see here from the context of his instructions that the first group that he's talking about here are Gentiles, while the second group in this chapter are the Jews. So Paul's asking the first group, Gentiles, to accept or receive the second group, which are Jewish believers, into their fellowship, to have fellowship with them. He wants Gentiles to show Jews love, Christian love, despite their oddities, despite their potential for divisive cultural differences. And, by the way, when you get to chapter 15, he'll ask the same thing in reverse. So for this chapter, we're looking at this side of the coin. Paul refers to the Jewish believers as those who are weak in faith. Now, this takes a minute of explanation because otherwise we can run to some wrong thinking about it. The word weak in this context is not pejorative. Paul is not speaking of insults here. He's speaking in spiritual terms. So weakness here refers to a lack of spiritual strength, a lack of spiritual maturity. To make a comparison, in physical terms, it would be similar to referring to a three-year-old toddler as weak in comparison to a teenager. You call a toddler weak when you compare him to a teenager, but you're not insulting the toddler. 
you're simply describing the obvious difference between the two. A teenager has grown, has matured. Because of that, they're able to lift heavy objects. A toddler's not yet able to do the same thing. So naturally, you're not going to expect the same thing of the toddler that you would of a teenager. So only in that sense would you describe the toddler as weak. And Paul's asking the church to think in a similar way about those who are weak spiritually. And he's describing Jewish believers as weak in the faith in this one sense. In the sense that these were believers who felt the need to continue observing aspects of the law. By grace, Jewish believers were as free from the Mosaic law as Gentile believers are. And yet, many Jews found this transition too big of a leap for them to make right away. It's very easy to understand that. If you were to look at your own life in terms of the culture and the traditions that mark how you live, things you take for granted and don't give a minute's thought to, what if I were to rip all of that out and say you have an entirely different culture and lifestyle now? It would be a jarring experience and an uncomfortable one. And so Jewish believers felt great unease, for the most part, at abandoning their prior convictions so abruptly. So what they would tend to do is maintain some of them, kind of like a blanket of, of comfort. You know, you might not do it all, but there's some key things you hold on to, and it just makes you feel a little bit more yourself. And chief among those would have been dietary restrictions, because there's nothing that really hits us harder than food aversions. You know, if you've been taught to avoid a certain kind of food your whole life, it's never been a part of your family, never been a part of your life. To suddenly see that show up on a plate, it doesn't matter what your brain's telling you. There's a part of you that just won't have it. And so dietary restrictions were a particularly difficult one for a Jew to overcome. And Paul says this was a sign of weakness in faith in the sense that it meant they were not strong enough spiritually, not yet, to take full advantage of the liberty that they had now in Christ. They were feeling more comfortable in the old ways even as they walked in the grace of the new covenant. Their conscience was still growing in its appreciation of what liberty had made available to them. So in the meantime, they were relying on the familiarity and the safety of what they had been taught under the law as a kind of crutch to avoid their conscience being wounded, to avoid feeling wrong, even as they might understand that it was okay. Now, Flipping the coin for a minute, Gentile believers had no trouble embracing the liberty they had for you know, what they could eat in the New Covenant because they had never been under the law. So they had never had any restrictions for the most part. And there was no attraction, by the way, in a law that said you couldn't eat what you wanted to eat. So they weren't attempted to go under the law. The, the whole idea of it was of no interest to them. And so for that reason, and you can imagine this, I think, fairly easily, if you're a Gentile in the body of Christ and you see a Jew in the body of Christ who has struggles with pork or shellfish or whatever other things they couldn't eat, it's very easy to look down on them a little bit. It's very easy to sort of feel a little self-righteous, a little superior, maybe to mock them a little bit, just to treat them with a little less respect because you can see that they're weak on something as meaningless as food. Or so that's how you would feel. And even worse, there might have been those in the church, Gentiles in the church, who have felt the need to force this issue by pressuring Jewish believers to go against their conscience, sort of putting a ham sandwich in front of them and saying, go on, you can eat it. Now, Paul says that the loving way for a Gentile to accommodate Jewish believers was to do something very different, to accept them, he says, into the body unconditionally, welcome them, 
despite their continuing observance of dietary laws or whatever else. And importantly, Paul adds at the end of verse 1, Gentiles weren't to accept them merely for the purpose of passing judgment. I love this comment because it shows you how well he understood human nature. To accept someone for the purpose of passing judgment means to bring them in under false pretense. It's saying you act as if you receive them, but in reality, you're not truly receiving them unless and until they conform to your desires. I think there's a lot of women who date men with this very same attitude. I'm going to fix him. That's not true acceptance, and it's certainly not loving. Nevertheless, Paul acknowledges, and I think this is an important caveat, don't forget this point, while he at one point at the outset tells Gentiles accept them, but notice that Paul also acknowledges that Jewish dependence on the law is not desirable. So he's calling for acceptance of Jews, but only in the sense of unity, not for the purpose of adopting their theology. You see the difference? You're not accepting their point of view. Their point of view needs to be fixed over time. He's saying accept them in the meantime, despite their point of view. He's not endorsing a believer's need to observe Jewish dietary restrictions. Dietary restrictions came about as a result of a law God gave to Israel. And even for Israel, it was said to be of temporary importance. It was a temporary custodian. It served to separate Israel from the rest of the nations so they would maintain their uniqueness and maintain their identity and avoid being compromised with other nations. Paul expresses it this way in Galatians 3. When explaining the law in 3.19, he says, Why the law then? It was added, meaning added to the covenant God gave to Abraham, because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. And then jumping to verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So Paul says God added, for Israel's sake, a law in addition to the earlier covenant for the purpose of addressing their sin because of transgressions. And I love the fact that he says it was ordained until. There's no escaping that word. It was ordained until, meaning it would only last until the seed comes. Then it's not going to be there anymore. The word makes clear the law was intended to be a temporary accommodation. Paul calls the law a custodian, a tutor, like a babysitter keeping God's people safe until the parent comes to claim the child. Any Jewish believer who understood this truth possessed spiritual strength in comparison to perhaps other Jewish believers who didn't quite understand this truth yet. The strength of their faith was evidenced in their willingness to set aside dietary restrictions that they knew no longer applied. Those stronger Jewish Christians were the ones who'd be willing to eat anything along with their Gentile brothers and sisters. But those in the Jewish faith who were weak in regard to these truths, they would still eat vegetables only, Paul says. Now, what's interesting is the Mosaic Law did not require that Jews eat vegetables only, which begs the question, then why did that happen to become the practice among Jews who were weak in faith? Why did they resort to vegetarianism? Well, the most likely answer is that the Jewish believers who were in the church and living around Gentiles were eating vegetables only to avoid eating anything that might be unclean. Remember, there's no such thing as an unclean vegetable in the Mosaic Law. Fresh fruits, vegetables, and grains are, in their natural, unprocessed state, kosher by definition. But if a vegetable is combined with dairy or meat, 
or it's cooked in a pot that had previously been used for dairy or for meat, then under Jewish law, it takes on the properties of those other foods and therefore it starts to have those restrictions. So the fact that the Jews had felt that they had no recourse except to eat vegetables only in the early church tells you something about what was going on. First, it tells you something about the weakness of their own faith, yes, but it also tells you that Gentile believers in that church were showing no consideration for their Jewish brothers and sisters. They were giving no thought to how they used the pots and dishes that fed the fellowship. They were probably serving food in the room that they knew was not kosher. And as a result of preparing unkosher food for a group of people using pots and dishes that were mixed, they forced the Jewish believers who were still desiring to follow dietary restrictions into a place where their only recourse was to have vegetables only because it was the only safe way they could eat among the brothers and sisters. It just goes to show you the lack of consideration. So I could ask the question, who was actually weaker in their faith? The Jews who wouldn't abandon the law or the Gentiles who wouldn't show consideration for their weak brothers and sisters? Both those issues have to be addressed in the body. Both the issue of weakness in the faith and the Gentiles' lack of concern for their weaker brothers. And as a result, the prescription Paul gives us now for these two issues form two key principles And those principles still apply today. First, we find the principle that we must endeavor to grow in our appreciation of our relationship with Christ. It's important that we avoid unduly burdening others in the body with our spiritual weaknesses. Everyone has a weakness. And in the body, you're supposed to gather so that others can help you grow with respect to those spiritual weaknesses. It's not a sin. It's not a problem to have weaknesses. In fact, that's probably a permanent part of all our existence. We're just moving from one weakness to a strength and then on to the next problem. And we have people around us to help us. But the fact that we know that of ourselves places us under an obligation to avail ourselves of the support that is in the body so that we may grow out of our dependence. In other words, we cannot be self-satisfied and say that my weakness is my own and I have a right to have it and you'll have to accommodate it indefinitely. That's selfishness. That's like someone who says, I'm going to stay on welfare as long as it's available, rather than saying, I have an obligation to do for myself as best I can. In the church, in terms of spiritual maturity, we have a personal obligation not to let our weaknesses become someone else's problem indefinitely. Secondly, for the flip side, we have to be prepared to accept weaker members of the body without passing judgment. So we expect them to grow in maturity, but that takes time. And we have to give them grace, and we have to give patience to the process. Because in order for spiritual growth to happen, they first must be part of the body where they will be trained and encouraged. You can't put the cart before the horse. If you expect someone to grow, you've got to let them come in first. And as a believer, get involved and trained and then expect the growth. You can't say you have to grow first before we'll let you in. Which is why in verse 3, Paul says, the one with faith to eat, that is those who have appreciated their freedom, cannot show contempt for those who lacked the faith to eat all things. And likewise, those who observed dietary restrictions were not to judge those who chose to eat freely. Instead, each group recognizes God has accepted the other already on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. So your faith in Jesus Christ puts to rest the differences that Paul's talking about because Christ has triumphed over all things already on our behalf. For example, for the Jew, Christ kept the old law perfectly. That means... His perfection in doing all those legal things 
has been credited to us by faith, to the Jew. So the Jew need not worry about their performance under the law. Christ has performed it for them. And for the Gentile, Christ fulfills the Abrahamic covenant's promise that all nations would be blessed through this seed, which means it brings us righteousness by faith apart from law. So we have no concerns of the law either. We don't need to rescue anyone from them. We don't need to solve anybody's legal problem. So for both groups, Christ paying the penalty of our sin means that neither of us find our righteousness in our works, whether that is eating or not eating. Neither of us has an interest in the other person's behaviors, whether it comes to righteousness or our standing before Christ, because he's triumphed over that need in his work for us. So that's why Paul asks in verse 4, how can you rightly judge the servant of another? By faith, both the Jew or the Gentile has become bond slaves of Christ. That means we serve him according to his commands. And since you cannot know how the Lord is commanding one of his servants, how can you judge whether that person is doing the right thing or not? Apart from anything specifically commanded in Scripture, you have to give each believer latitude to obey Christ as they feel convicted. Again, apart from anything specific that Scripture would require. And Paul reminds us that each of us stands or falls at our own judgment based on how you and I responded to Christ's call on our lives individually. So you're not going to be judged by Christ based on what someone else thought you should do in serving Christ. Paul says that Christ is able to make each servant, each believer, stand. That is to say, he knows what's best for each of his servants. So if you pay attention to his direction, you're going to get a good judgment if you listen. But if you're giving attention to everybody else's opinions about what you should be doing to serve Christ, rather than listening to Christ's own direction, you will not stand. You will fall, in other words. That's the danger of something I'm going to label here. This chapter has a a one-word label for me. This is the danger of liberalism in the church. Liberalism is taking liberty too far. Ignoring convictions so that you can go with the crowd. Liberalism results from combining the liberty of each individual within the group to arrive at a superset of privileges. So you abandon your own convictions anytime you discover that there is someone else in the body, another believer, who does not share your particular conviction. And if you do that routinely, you end up with no convictions. You just start to assume that if this is good for one of us, it must be good for all of us. And so as soon as I find another believer who says they like R-rated movies, well, then I guess I can watch R-rated movies. Or as soon as I find someone else who likes to drink, smoke, or dance, or date girls that do, or whatever the saying is, suddenly, whatever I might have felt personally concerning those things, I toss out the window because I, I look at someone else's convictions as superior to my own. It's called liberalism. In reality, liberalism is an abuse of liberty. Everyone, every believer, has a limited range of liberty that Christ has determined for them individually, and it is unique to them to some extent. That is, some will drink alcohol, some will smoke, some will play the lottery, some will watch R-rated movies, and some will not. And some will give 10% of their money to the church, and some will give more, and some will give less. These are individual convictions. Even if in our own feelings we can tie something to Scripture and say, that's why my conviction is true, that doesn't automatically make it a conviction for the church. Unless it's specifically called out in Scripture, it cannot be said to be. And each of us have to pay attention to our particular personal convictions and allow the Spirit to guide those choices. And there will be some among us who feel greater liberty. And those who do 
may not impose that freedom on others thinking that you know better what they need. If we press other believers to explore more freedom than they otherwise feel comfortable experiencing, you're causing them to sin. And if you're successful in convincing another Christian to go against their convictions in the name of liberty, you're making a huge mistake on their behalf because you're wounding their conscience, Paul says. And he picks up there in verse 5. Paul says, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observe it for the Lord. He who eats, does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So Paul shifts, as you notice his example a little bit at the outset here, from dietary restrictions to the Sabbath day observance, but his underlying concern is still the same. Paul says one person, and here you might label it the observant Jew, one person regards one day above another. Of course, that one day that we're talking about here is the Jewish Sabbath. Jews under the law observed a Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. The Sabbath was their high day of the week. It came with a long list of restrictions and observances. Obviously, Gentiles had no such observance. They don't have a Sabbath. And Christians in general are not under that restriction now. So there's no Sabbath observance in the week for a Christian. There's not one for Gentiles in general. Then it says in the second half of verse 5, Paul says, another believer, in contrast to that first one, another believer, well, he may regard every day alike, which is what I just described. That would refer to not observing a Sabbath day at all. Regardless of what day you think the Sabbath is, it doesn't matter. This is an example of someone who says, I have no Sabbath day observance versus the one who says, I have one. Now notice, I want you to notice as Paul sets up this dichotomy, before he addresses what he's about to say about each one, I want you to notice Paul does not condemn or correct either person. Do you notice that? He just lists these two options as equally valid ways to observe your walk. And then he goes on to add that whichever way you choose, just be fully convinced in your own mind. That is referring to your conscience. So before we go any further, clearly Paul, and therefore Scripture, has no problem with Christians foregoing any kind of Sabbath observance, whether you're a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian. And this is not limited to this passage. Scripture teaches repeatedly, we are not under the law, that there is no requirement for a believer to hold one day above the rest. But by the same token, a believer may hold one day above the rest, should they choose to do so. Again, a Christian who is growing in their faith would be expected to abandon such an observance as they mature because they come to understand that its purpose is fulfilled in Christ, that all that they're attempting to achieve in that day has been achieved by their faith in Christ. It's not a requirement, but the expectation is strength in faith moves us away from observing shadows when we have the substance. But in the meantime, we have to accept those who are still dependent on such an observance without judging them. It's, a, it's so easy to just fall into that last step. You've accepted them, but in the quiet corners of the room, you're like, what a shame they still do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. It's just silly that they do it, but what are you going to do? They just want to do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm guilty of that. I've done that. That's, that's judging them. That's not accepting them. 
The point is, each believer has to be permitted to follow his or her own conscience on these matters. And so long as they feel convicted, let them live accordingly. In verse 6, Paul reminds us that when we act according to our convictions, and this is an interesting point, I hope you'll catch this, because if you miss it, you miss the main thought. When we act according to our convictions, whether on matters of food or days of the week or whatever, we are serving Christ in our heart. That is the essence of obedience. That is, doing what you feel convicted to do. So the corollary is also true, by the way. Sin is acting contrary to your convictions. So Paul says, the one who observes a Sabbath in full conviction that this is how they are supposed to obey and please Christ, that person's doing well because what are they doing? They're following their convictions. And the one who doesn't observe a Sabbath day also as a matter of conviction is doing equally well. Does that seem ironic at all? Two people doing opposite things, both pleasing Christ because they're both doing what their convictions tell them to do. Both are seeking to obey. While the Spirit will never lead you in a way that is contrary to Scripture, He may ask you to forego some of your liberty at times for your own good. There's nothing sinful about a Christian assuming a more restrictive lifestyle out of personal conviction. For example, Christians are not required to observe a Sabbath, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. If someone chooses to observe one, a Jewish believer could feel conviction to continue in a Sabbath day observance, either because they haven't been taught otherwise or they just don't feel comfortable yet abandoning that practice. But if you and I were to go up to that Jewish believer and tell them to go against their convictions, you are asking them to sin. And that's the really interesting part of this. What they're doing is not sin. And if they quit, it's not sin. But if you convince them to go against their convictions, they're sinning. You're eroding their confidence in their own convictions. What you're doing unintentionally is training them to ignore their internal spiritual compass, and that's a dangerous precedent. For example, if a Christian is convinced that Christ expects him to observe a Sabbath, let's say a Gentile Christian even, even though the Scripture doesn't require it, that person is obligated to act according to their convictions. To act contrary to what that person believes is an intent to sin even if what they're doing is not actually sin. Does this make sense? So the fact that they believed Christ wants them to do it is all that is required for them now to have a necessity to do it or else they sin. Now, the question then becomes, how do you ever get somebody out of this pattern? I mean, if we convince this Christian that dropping the Sabbath day observance is the best course, not only are we causing them to sin in the moment by violating their own conscience, but we've also given them cause to doubt all their convictions, right? Because now they're not sure what they know anymore. And if I can just ignore my convictions and it works out well for me, well, then I'll ignore other ones too. That's not loving. Your goal should not be to get people to agree with your point of view on matters of liberty. That's not a goal in the body of Christ for uniformity in liberty. That's not a goal. Our goal should be helping all believers become more obedient. That's the goal. And in verses 7 through 9, Paul says, no Christian lives for himself or dies for himself or herself, but we exist to serve, that is to obey Christ. Now let me explain what he means by live and die. To live and to die is Paul's way of referring to the two periods of a believer's existence in which you serve Christ. To live refers to the time you serve Christ now on earth. Dying refers to passing from this life into our eternal existence, and there you serve Christ forever in glory. So regardless of whether you're living here 
or whether you've passed into eternity, you're supposed to serve Christ, not yourself. So we need to leave other believers to serve Christ as he calls them to do so without getting in the way and becoming busybodies. Don't try to make other believers serve your convictions. Under, under false pretense, or maybe we have totally good intentions, but we set up these programs. Somebody sat in a boardroom and decided that for the next 60 days, everyone in the church needs to do X. That's assuming convictions for other people. What if what God wants to work on in someone else's heart is they need to you know, quit fooling around their wife? That's their conviction right now. You don't need to substitute something else for that. That's a pretty extreme example. But maybe it's about one person needs to be more in Bible study, one person needs to be more in missions, and somebody else needs to be more with their family, and somebody else needs to be more with service. And, somebody else, and we just say, nope, right now it's all about missions. Everybody's into missions for the next 60 days. No, it's not. I mean, that's not wrong for some, but it will be wrong for some others because their convictions are taking them somewhere else right now. Let the Word and the Spirit move people. So Paul here is not talking about things that Scripture defines as sin. He's talking about matters of liberty, where there is no automatic right or wrong. And he's also not talking about our correcting of another believer who's engaged in sin. There's, there's plenty of time we need to get involved in other people's lives to correct them. Again, he's talking about matters of liberty. So the general principle that underlies Paul's teaching is don't make yourself another Christian's Holy Spirit. Do not assign your convictions to another person. Whatever the Lord has placed on our heart concerning liberty and the various practices of faith, that is for us alone. And barring specific scripture to the contrary, anything that another believer does by faith and conviction is proper and must be respected. And especially in cases where another believer's convictions are falling short of enjoying all the liberty that they have in Christ. Those are the situations where we really have to be careful. Do not insist that their convictions are wrong. They're not. Instead, patiently instruct that believer in Scripture so that over time they grow strong enough to enjoy their liberty. For example, if a believer feels a conviction, and I'm going to use one of the examples that were probably true in Paul's day, if you had a believer who would not eat pork today, and I have friends who know somebody like this in their life, a Gentile, Christian, who has chosen to adopt this aspect of Jewishness in their life. They don't want to eat pork anymore. We should respect that conviction even though we know it to be unnecessary. We accommodate them in love. We don't serve them pork when we're around them. We don't say anything to make them feel unwelcome or disrespected because of their convictions. We don't flaunt our liberty by pulling out a ham sandwich when we sit next to them in the lunchroom. <laughs> you know, that would actually take a moment of forethought, right? Of saying, oh, I'm going to be next to Joe today. He hates pork. Honey, give me the chicken salad. Why? Because Joe doesn't like pork? Yes, because I love him. I don't want to offend him. It's not about the food. It's about Joe. And most importantly, don't try to fix their, quote, problem by pressuring them to abandon their convictions. Instead, accept their convictions so that you maintain fellowship without judgment, patiently instructing them from Scripture. By the way, when you teach them, you don't necessarily seek out all the specific passages about pork. And it's like every time we have a Bible study, somehow that's the topic, you know. That's trying to force the issue again, right? You just teach the whole counsel of God's word and you expect that the Lord is going to grow their appreciation of grace. And if the time is right and when it's right, God will work on that issue and it'll come up and it'll be dealt with. Otherwise, it's not your business. So in other words, don't teach believers to ignore their convictions. Teach believers the Bible so that the Holy Spirit will change their convictions. In verse 9, Paul says, that's why Christ died and rose again, 
so that he could be Lord over all who are being saved, over a people that are unified for all eternity. His death means even now, as you and I live in a sinful body, our service to him is, is acceptable because of our faith alone. You don't have to wait until you reach eternity to start serving him. You do that now by obeying your convictions. And your service won't stop when you die. You just move on into eternal terms of serving him. But by human nature, especially when you're in a tight-knit group, you do like to see some conformity, though, don't you? I mean, for all of the teaching we just ran through, there's still that side of us that says, yeah, but we kind of like everyone to do the same thing. And to an extent, conforming in the body of Christ is helpful and necessary to some extent. But in cases of spiritual maturity, when it comes to issues of liberty, it's a dangerous expectation. When more mature believers start to expect less mature believers, these weaker brothers and sisters, to act like we do for the sake of conformity, then we're promoting liberalism and we're hurting them in the end. Paul raises that concern in the next piece. In verse 10, he says, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to me. So then each one of us is to give an account of himself to God. If we demand conformity to our standards, we're judging our brother. You may not have perceived it as such, you know, too often today we'll hear people, they'll throw out that statement, don't judge me, thou shalt not judge, right? We sort of throw that out as a, as a defense against anyone having any thought at all about who we are and how we live our life, right? And we, we claim the Bible prohibits judging one another. That is true in some contexts, it's very untrue in others. And here's the distinction. In matters of sin and righteousness, the body of Christ is absolutely called to judge one another. In matters of sin a righteousness, we are absolutely supposed to be judging each other all the time. Paul says it plainly, that we are to judge members of the body in matters of right or wrong so that we can ensure good behavior. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked from amongst yourselves, Paul says. So we're to remove the wicked, so to speak, from among ourselves and this has to require judging sin whenever we see it in the body, in love, with an attempt to restore, not to, to destroy. But there's still this inherent need to tell somebody, you know, you ought to stop doing that. And we're going to talk to you about how and why, and we're going to help you, but you've got to cut it out. It's bad. That's judging. That's the kind of judging we are to do and we should do. But on the other hand, we are never, never to judge another believer on matters of personal liberty. So on sin and righteousness, always. On liberty, never. Not unless liberty turns into sin. Paul says that here in Romans and elsewhere. Listen to what he says in Colossians chapter 2.16. He says, no one, and listen to the, the firm way in which he states this, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And those are all examples of the kind of liberty issues we're talking about. And he goes on, those things which are mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So no one may judge you on those things of liberty. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, even more strongly, speaking of himself, he says, if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? You see what he's saying there? In a nutshell, he says, no man is in a position to judge my convictions. I have convictions as God has assigned me, 
And they're not subject to anyone's judgment. Again, on matters of personal liberty. So this is true for every believer. Every believer's choices and decisions may be judged when they are a violation of Scripture and therefore constitute sin. But when they're merely a matter of personal liberty, no one should judge. Do what you feel convicted to do. End of story. Christ alone judges you. That is to say, you're not without a judge. (laughs) You will be judged. It just won't be by other people. He alone will judge you on whether you obeyed the convictions he gave you. Can you think of times when you may have acted contrary to your own convictions? And yet what you were actually doing wasn't sin in and of itself. You still felt guilty, didn't you? You were still regretting a decision, even though others around you were doing the same thing and you knew it wasn't inherently wrong. But something about it you knew was wrong for you. That's a moment when you sinned, not because the act was sinful, but because you went against your conscience. We don't want to encourage other believers to ever act that way or to become comfortable acting that way. Because although you won't judge them, Christ will judge them. So not only will their judgment before Christ be impacted, but here's the kicker. Your judgment will be impacted as well. Paul says at the end of verse 10, we all stand for this judgment seat moment with Christ, the moment when we're evaluated for reward. Again, it's not a judgment for punishment. It's for reward. And I'm sure we'll all face it with some regrets. Look, none of us get out of this life without some regrets. That's okay. God's grace covers all our sin. And in forgiveness and in mercy, we'll receive some reward. I don't believe that that we're going to find ourselves destitute in the kingdom. But what I am saying is we don't want to send others, much less ourselves, into that moment with any more baggage than necessary. So ironically, you and I think we may be doing somebody a favor by convincing them to enjoy a pork chop once in a while, but in reality, we're hurting their future judgment if we're leading them to sin. And then on top of all that, we're hurting our own judgment because we were sinning in the attempt to convince them to go against their convictions. So we're just trying to make the point that there has to be some accommodation in our hearts for what other people feel is their convictions. Our goal in this is not to celebrate liberty such that it leads to sin. Our goal is to simply give room for the diversity that God will have in the body for convictions so that everyone can grow together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us patience, Father, and love and respect and accommodation for all those around us in the body, for the diversity that you have called into your body. Uh, Father, each of us will have different convictions. Help us to obey them. Help us to encourage others to obey them in their own hearts. Uh, Take away our haughtiness, Father, or any sense of superiority when we may feel we have a greater strength in these matters than someone else. And also caution us, Father, against taking our liberty too far. We just want to obey you. We want to stand before you in the best way we can in the moment that will come. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, room again, for the chance to teach and to hear your word. Bring us back next week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.